Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. As always, every week, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for your presence wherever you are, whenever you are listening to this. I really appreciate you and I'm really grateful for you. If you haven't joined our powerful community, there's no better time than now to go ahead and click the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you can also join us by visiting our social media accounts. Our handle is at an immigrant's life. How was your weekend, guys? Mine was pretty amazing. I went on a bike ride. For the first time this year, I was so excited. The weather was so beautiful. After the ice storm that we had, it was just like the sky cleared up. So I was really grateful. I went for a 51 kilometers ride for the one that uses miles. I don't know, dude. Just go Google it, all right? I uh, went with my friend, and man, it just it made me grateful, you know? it's. I just can't ride indoors. It's, it's not for me. So if you follow me on the social media, like I said earlier, I'm going to try to post more videos and pictures of me going on these adventures, all right? And as always, every week, if you or someone you know wants to be a guest on the podcast, reach out to our social media accounts or email us at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. Let's connect and let's tell your beautiful story. Now, let's talk about the episode. The guest this week is exploring his culture through his artistic sensibility and is kind enough to allow us to experience it with him. This episode reminds me of listening to a soft rock album, calming and enjoyable. So I hope you enjoy listening to it too. And let's not waste more time. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa Dalawat at Lo, today's guest and award-winning filmmaker. He is a perfect example of it makes no difference where you're from, who you decide to be is what counts. Everyone, please welcome Nick LaFell. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having me. And thank you so much for letting me be on your podcast. It's a great pleasure. And uh, I can't wait to talk with you. Oh, thank you for coming on and all the kind words. I, I really do appreciate it. I do. Thank you so much. And it, yeah, no, it's just been uh, really wonderful to be able to see how you've been able to cultivate such uh, a great community of uh, immigration stories uh, on social media and also on your podcast as well. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much. You're too kind. You're too kind. I'm not good with compliments, so drop the compliments. That's good enough. All right. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll stop right away. I'll stop right away. One line, two lines. I'm good. Thank you. And then we'll move on. <laughs> Why don't you tell the immigrant nation where they can reach you or if you want to promote anything before we start? Yeah, I have my I have my website uh, at Squarespace. It's uh, nickleffel.com uh, at Squarespace uh, or on Squarespace uh, and everything. And you can find me there. I think also my Vimeo page where all of my videos are at is uh, nicholas.l. Uh, and you can find all of my films and anything you want over there. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a chance to look at some of your videos, but... But your website is beautiful, man. Well done. Oh, thank you. It took a lot of work to try to be able to create something that might be interesting or more uh, easier to look at at the eye. I, you know, it's it, I'm not I'm not the best at making websites, so I had to take some advice from friends. Hmm. Hey, at least you can make a website. I don't even have a website. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. By the way, where are you located from? I'm in Chicago. Oh, the Chai City. Yeah, it's it's the Windy City. That's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Were you originally from uh, Chicago? No, I'm I'm actually not originally from Chicago. Uh, I grew up uh, in. I was born in Yekaterinburg, Russia, 
and then I was adopted as a toddler uh, and brought over to the United States uh, to a wonderful, loving family that lived uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And then uh, we all collectively, uh, after a couple of years, moved over to Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, now I'm in Chicago doing my filmmaking thing. Mm. Why did you move to Madison? Uh, I think it was closer to uh, some of my family members and stuff and uh, just because of uh, job opportunities and uh, yeah. Mm. Do you mind talking about like the process of the adaptation, like your adopted parents, why did they decide to go to Russia? Why did, why Russia? Why not just, I don't know, a different country? Yeah, of course. I think to be honest, uh, my parents, my Both parents, uh, wonderful people, um, they knew kind of right away that they wanted to adopt uh, a child and they, they believe in the adoption system. And, you know, it's, of course, a really multifaceted system uh, with many, you know, ills and things that are kind of convoluted within it as a system. But in general, you know, the kind of need to want to help other people and to contribute towards, you know, bettering children who already are in need. Uh, they really prescribed to that type of thought and they uh, they wanted to reach out. So they went to a, an adoption agency that worked with international adoption. And I think I think as well at home adoption, but I'm not quite sure uh, specifically. And they didn't really choose Russia, sort of Russia chose them or the <laughs> adoption agency just showed them this is these are some of the kids that we're looking at. And see, these are some of the kids that, you know, come up for us right now. And mm -hmm. I guess in their database that I came up for them, or at least that's how I've been told uh, and stuff. Maybe there are a couple of details that I, I can't remember in between mm -hmm. there. Uh, and they said, okay, for sure. Yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll just go to Russia and, and figure this out. Mm, that's beautiful. What was it like to grow up as an adoptee? That's a, an interesting question because it's sort of an ever evolving thing. You know, I'm finding out so many different things about it and I still feel like as though, uh, you know, I'm kind of rediscovering uh, a lot of facets of adoption in adulthood as well. But growing up, um, I guess it was always, uh, you know, being adopted as a toddler, I don't, I don't have really much memory of uh, an orphanage. An orphanage. Uh, mm. And for me, you know, a lot of my identity was understanding that I was adopted and being in the United States, uh, you know, as a really young kid and understanding that my parents are, you know, people who aren't, you know, biologically related to me at all, they would constantly remind me that, you know, I was adopted just so that as a young kid that I would be able to understand this like extremely vast concept mm -hmm. um, and everything. So there was no sense of like reveal. And also my, my adoptive parents and my adoptive family is uh, white. And so I've, you know, vastly looked different than them. So They're like white, white. White, white. Yes, my, my brother is my brother is blonde, and uh, oh I'm in my a family God. of blondes and brunettes, and uh, yeah, it's a whole trip. But um, I would say that in in that capacity, you know, my family was has been extremely, you know, really amazing to be able to grow up alongside them, and to I obviously had no feelings that I'm ever separated or away from them in that capacity. But I think societally that there were a lot of things that you know, that made me different and kind of differentiated myself and the way that I grew up and the way that I perceived the world that was very different than, you know, non-adopted kids. I grew up in a predominantly white community in Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, as a young adopted kid, to be able to tell other people that, you know, I was born in Russia and I am a Russian person You know, people would people would look at me and they're like, "Oh, no, you're not." Like, I, I I don't see anything of it. I had no idea of of anything because that's just all I was told. You know, mm. if you tell a little kid that you're like, "You're from here," this kid's going to believe it. Mm -hmm. So I promptly did as I was told, and I, you know, told everybody where I'm from, and you know, and stuck to it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you have siblings that are also adopted? I have no other adopted siblings. My, I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and uh, they are bi biologically related to my parents. Okay, so they adopted you, and then suddenly they start having babies. Yes, uh, yeah, no, that's that's just the way it happens. 
That's yeah. That, I've I've heard of that. Like like couples trying to have babies for years and years, and they don't have babies, and then they adopt it, and then they start having biological babies. Yes, of course. And it, you know, it's it's uh, whatever way the family wants to form. I think it speaks rather to the form of what is a family, what a family means to you know what it be, means to be a family. I, I don't see view my siblings as any different or you know dissimilar to me because of their you know relationship with their parents in any sort of way uh and stuff and really that it shows that the bounds of familial relationships are built upon trust and responsibility and being there for one another and being with you know each other and stuff and uh yeah yeah i mean you're lucky that your main family they are very they made you feel that you are one of them, which you are one of them, but were there other nuclear family members or family friends that somehow made you feel like you're kind of off to the side, kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think outside of outside of my family immediately, um, just growing up in the United States in general, uh, you know, systematically, there are so many things in place that we can't escape from racism within, you know, like if it's systematic or if it's, you know, verbally communicated, it's a very ever-present thing. And I think that like growing up in a predominantly white community uh, in being able to, you know, try to exist in a space, uh, there's definitely a lot of like xenophobia against, you know, brown and uh, black and indigenous people. So being able to, you know, growing up like that and, and as a young kid, I think you know, it's 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 really common to kind of try to understand and approach racism as like, you know, a very, you know, it, it's it's a very real concept and everything. But for a young kid, uh, they, they don't see the world in this sort of way. They don't see the world in like, uh, you know, I am this person and I belong to this group in any way. I think, um, you know, that's something that, you know, previous generations have put in place and uh, was for, you know, a lot of adoptees have to experience that. Mm. And it's it's quite frustrating. And it's, really unfortunate being adopted even though you knew that you were adopted but obviously like you mentioned you look different from your siblings did it create some turmoil inside you the in the question of identity yeah most definitely uh in terms of identity i think you know i knowing where i was from Knowing that, you know, I, I in, in terms of my adoption and the information that come with it, uh, in similar to Josh Bro, who was previously on your show, who's a, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, in, in similar to, to him, I didn't have very many details about my adoption, uh, just, just known in general because of the circumstances under which I, I was born and stuff. So there's a lot of information that, you know, that many people would know about themselves that I simply do not know or know, know if it was made up in an attempt to kind of not have, have my birth family not be tracked by, you know, anything in any sort of way and stuff. Mm. And so in terms of identity, I think that a lot of adopted people have uh, the wondrous opportunity of being able to sort of uh, define who they are in the moment of what they want. You know, it's being able, you know, being abandonment in a sort of way is a very devastating thing. And, we can't stop that this is a thing that happens, but what we can do is try to, you know, better ourselves and be able to define who we are uh, as a person. So identity wise, you know, trying to fit in in the United States, I look, uh, you know, Latino or half black uh, and, and that, you know, society doesn't really have in the United States a category for people who are from Central Asia because it's an extremely underrepresented uh, <laughs> community. So therefore, you know, a lot of times, uh, assuming wise, people would approach me and act around me as if I belong to one of those other communities. Mm. And, uh, you know, growing up with that, I have a great amount of amicability and affection for these communities um, just by proxy. Uh, and I don't think that it's, you know, I think a lot of people maybe growing up, if, you know, you're not with, a, you, if you're mistaken for another community that possibly you have a really good and binding relationship with that community because you might be experiencing some of the troubles that they might be experiencing or just by default by passing as one of them. Mm, 100%. Like, 
great example would be my former guest, Soka Yoon. He's a Cambodian, and he was so close to the African Americans that he was like one of them. They used, they call, they, the community used to call them the, the black of Asia. You know? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, it, when uh, definitely, and there, there's the concept, and of course, and I think this has probably been talked about on your podcast about a million times. But the concept of like passing, white passing, black passing, whatever it may be, brown passing, uh, and it's the you know it's the the opposite perception from other people of what you are and how you should fit into society. So that really indicates a lot internally of a person of how they should identify. As, but as an adopted person or any person, I think you have the freedom in this life and in this world to be able to identify for yourself who you want to be and stuff. So it doesn't it doesn't really matter, you know, uh, whether you're living with a white family, you can you can choose to be a part of your community that you come from. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there's trauma that came with abandonment. Have you dealt with that? And if you have, what have you done personally? Um, I think, I think trauma and abandonment maybe might be a little bit different than, than probably what I have experienced and stuff. I think, uh, you know, my, I will say growing up in the United States, um, it's definitely a vastly different experience. Um, I would say that in terms of seeing a lot of these mixed kids who live in Russia, who are multi-ethnic, who are not just white and seeing some of the ways that, you know, they live and, and a lot of them are extremely impoverished and the, you know, the current situation in the country is extremely dire. Mm. Uh, I would say that, you know, one of the larger things that I feel less than abandonment is uh, an overarching sense of guilt that, you know, I see these other kids who, you know, come from this exact same communities that I came from, but they have to lead much different lives because of it. And though they are called, you know, connected closer to their culture, it's just a difference. And I think all adopted people have to kind of really take a look at this and see how they want to approach it. Mm, yeah, I completely see that. I saw in your video that you did a DNA test. What did you learn from it? Oh, my goodness. That, yeah, no, I the the recent development of being able to have access to companies like like Ancestry DNA or 23andMe has has completely changed my world. You know, growing up, like I had mentioned previously, uh, I you know like an uh, understanding that I was just born in Russia and I thought that I was just Russian. I mean, I had growing up, I had you know I like almond shaped eyes and dark black curly hair, dark brown eyes, and olive colored skin. This is not the typical you know, <laughs> type of a of a Russian or what would be stereotypically understood as a a Russian person. Mm. And uh, I think growing up, I, my, you know, I was able to attend, uh, you know, an integral um, immersion language and culture camp that revolved around Russian language and culture uh, located in, in northern Minnesota. So I was able to go to this summer camp and be able to continue speaking Russian fluently with all of my and develop relationships and friends with a lot of other people who were also adopted from Russia as well. Uh, therefore I was, you know, like I solemnly identified as a, as a Russian person and didn't really understand anything outside of that. The communities that I come from were kind of unknown to me in my younger childhood completely as there's not much dialogue that had been uh, talked out, talked about at all in the, uh, early 2000s and 2010s as well. So having said that, I just completely thought I was Russian and had no other inhibitions about what else I could be until, uh, you know, a couple of years, like literally this past year, I took a 23andMe DNA test. I thought to myself, you know, it's been a while. I don't really know what my ethnicity is. I don't know anything about myself. I knew that I was something else. And I, <laughs> I knew that I'm obviously not white like most Russians, but I never took it upon myself to really want to find out, you know, what, what I was. So I took the 23andMe DNA test. And the results were astounding, absolutely. Mm. Um, not finding out any, uh, not having any Russian or European blood uh, was <laughs> a little bit of a surprise, to say the least. Uh, but it basically broke down into part North African, specifically from Morocco, 
part Azeri from like the Caucasus from Azerbaijan, uh, uh, part Central Asian and a little bit Ethiopian as well. So mm. a really vast mix of things that I don't even know. And <laughs> in terms of Central Asian, um, we have leads and we think just by family research and stuff that it might be from Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, but probably more so Tajikistan, but I'm not 100% sure because the test didn't really tell me that much information about that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, it was extremely astounding. So being able to call myself whatever, you know, uh, being able to self-identify with these things was extremely eye-opening to me. And I have been able to, you know, kind of live my life understanding where I come from, but also understanding that I'm, ex uh, you know, like, I've received a large mix of things and can't really identify with one completely. So, mm. yeah, extremely yeah. mixed. That's, that's what, amazing. That's what man. I identify as. That's beautiful. Well, I when people are mixed, I you, you just usually call them future people. Yeah. They, why, why is that? Well, because you guys are going to be the future people because mixing will be the future, right? You cannot have globalization. Just, exactly. Of course. Well, you know, it, it, even people who are, you know, homogeneously in that, I think that there's also, you know, uh, some diction that, you know, it just goes to show that we all lead, lead really different lives and have vastly different experiences. And yes, maybe because of globalization, the future will hold um, a vaster range of, you know, uh, or I would say a less or lack of ethnocentricity. Mm -hmm. in that so yeah i would say that you're right mm -hmm. so figuring out where your dna is from your genes is from did it help you form your identity or you have had your identity formed already before that yeah i think uh in terms of identity and one of the great things about just being able to exist uh, in general is that, you know, you're constantly able to kind of rewrite yourself and rewrite who you are and dictate who you are as a person. Uh, and this, you know, it goes for anything, though, no matter where you're from and stuff. So I think that growing up, for me, I identified just as, you know, being me. I inherited a, like a sponge, everything <clears throat> that was put in front of me, uh, as one kid does. And that's how I identified. And, you know, growing up as an adult, I've been able to really tried to find uh, and, and relate to this artistically as well, that uh, these sorts of things really, you know, inhibit uh, who we are. You can take who you are ethnically and take it along with you. Or if you choose to not identify with that at all, there's no shame in it. I see so many people who are adopted from, a, you know, a, a, from people of color who are adopted in the United States. And I, you know, I think... A lot of times, a lot of people who are adopted tend to fall into two categories. People who are, you know, very, very much obsessed or like not in a negative way, of course, uh, very much passionate about the culture and the place that they come from. And a lot of and, and other people who maybe don't subscribe to that at all. And I don't think that one is better than the other. I don't think that, you know, being passionate about your culture is inherently better or worse than, you know, just being here, I think the, the construct of adoption really puts a lot of people into a very awkward place in society that doesn't make it better or worse that they're here, uh, you know, maybe in the West or, you know, not in the country that they came from, especially for like international adoption. Hmm. Uh, so therefore, you know, it's it, in terms of like identity and identity struggle uh, for me, you know, I think in the first half, uh, you know, of my childhood, I. I didn't really subscribe to whatever I, wherever I was from because it was just so vastly confusing for me. <clears throat> and then later on, when I was able to really discover, you know, uh, Central Asian, North African and Middle Eastern culture and really be able to sink my teeth into it, that's when I was able to find myself really happy because I was connecting with the person that, you know, maybe my ancestors had wanted to be. Hmm. And in retrospect, because I used to live that life of not knowing really who I was, I know so many people and I there would be there would never be a world where I would look down upon anyone for not doing that. Mm, definitely. Have you given a thought about your birth parents and what do you feel towards them? Yes, of course. I think uh, I growing up, uh, I like I said, I didn't know much information about 
you know, my birth parents, I don't even know if my birth mother's name was real or if it was faked on documentation to be able to kind of abstain from sort of responsibilities and things. Uh, but, you know, we can uh, refer from the facts. She she did have a very, very common uh, Persian name, and that makes it much harder to try to find her. Uh, <laughs> but the question, of course, is not about trying to find them. It's about, you know, my relationship with them, even though I don't even know who they are. I have absolutely zero information on my father, um, even though, like, I, I think, you know, like, there, there's absolutely no information that I had on my uh, father. Uh, so... Therefore, they're these complete unknowns to me. And that's uh. something that I've had to deal with as well. Uh, I would say because of, you know, their sacrifice and, you know, decision to give me up for adoption. That is a multi-complicated, you know, a complicated issue that uh, a lot of people have varying opinions on. Uh, but for me, I think growing up because of hardships, I grew up with the uh, dyslexia and ADHD hmm. and it definitely inhibited a lot of you know the, the way that I live my life and uh, you know go, had gone about schooling and university and everything like that in between um, and these are probably things that came from poverty and maybe malnourishment uh, whilst in the womb we'll say and you know having kind of a complicated relationship with the fact that I've had to deal with these hardships because of uh, potential like you know, uh, non-responsibility uh, from my birth parents, that has been something that I've had to deal with. And it's just, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So either way, I don't feel it as like negative or positive. It just simply is. Hmm. Do you feel survival guilt? Survival guilt? I Like I said, yeah, I think I feel survival guilt. I think I I feel some sense of, trying to, you know, trying to understand the constructs of adoption. It is neither like a positive nor negative thing. Uh, but, you know, definitely I feel really bad when I'm, you know, I see, I, I, I feel bad when I see people who are adopted, who are experiencing hardship and people who are in orphanages uh, abroad when they experience hardship as well. So I think, you know, uh, definitely like, being over here and being able to reap the benefits of, uh, you know, having kind of a, almost a nicer life, uh, than my counterparts. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I saw that you're trying to make a documentary to find your relatives. What's going on there right now? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I'm working on a documentary right now that I'm directing, uh, it, the name of it, it, the working title of it is Finding Gunnara. Uh, and we're trying to, basically it revolves me working around my 23andMe results and trying to find relatives via the technology on 23andMe to be able to find third cousins and, uh, developing it and being able to make it into a film and sort of more of a cinematic experience. I think uh, for me, I'm able to really kind of sink my teeth into an experience when I'm able to be a filmmaker as well and be able to cover through it um, and be able to kind of show everybody what I'm doing through my own lens. So we uh, basically, I found some cousins on the 23andMe app and I was able to reach out to them and be able to kind of get, uh, you know, a good uh, kind of good communication with them and I found um, extremely amazing people hmm. and extre extremely you know communicative and very very vastly different stories than mine and there are so many people that live all over in terms of third and fourth cousins some of whom live in Toronto and Canada hmm. and going and or sorry I'm stuttering so much you, you should uh, edit this out. Don't worry uh, about but, it. Uh, the um, the documentary I want to do it follows uh, these cousins that I have in Toronto because they uh, immigrated here from the Middle East, and uh, I want to go and meet them and be able to discover and reconnect with Central Asian culture and Middle Eastern culture with them, and hopefully they will be able to give me leads, and so I can find my birth family. Uh, mm -hmm. that I don't know where they are. So creating that as a, a cinematic experience has been 
extremely, extremely delightful, but also challenging. So can you walk me into the process of the, the DNA test? So you do, you, I guess you spit or whatever you need to do to give them. And then you agree that, okay, I want people to, to see me that, you know, if I have a relative or whatever. How do they find out that you're related to someone? Obviously by the genes, right? But like how? Yes, of course. So the, the, at least the 23andMe test, I don't know about any of the other tests. They're done through uh, saliva uh, results. And so you basically, you send your saliva in a container over to uh, you know, a lab and they deconstruct your results and are able to extract uh, the information uh, from your DNA and are able to project it onto um, an app that allows uh, that you know shows you basically your ethnic uh, profile, but also anyone else who has done this particular uh, test is able to agree and uh, kind of sign that they that they also want to have their stuff uh, available and their profile available to people who they're related to. So for people who are adopted, just like myself, for people who have long lost family, this is amazing technology that, you know, so that they can finally reconnect. I know so many friends who are adopted from uh, Central Asia and from Russia who've been able to reconnect because of this. Hmm. Yeah, this is one thing I'll never do. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? I don't want to spit in somewhere in the, and give them my DNA. Make a clone out well, of me or let whatever. Let me tell you that it, the results, the results are the results will will surprise you either way. Oh, definitely. But obviously, listen for you, it makes so much sense for you to do it. Like it, it, it shows you like oh, where you're really from. I know my mom and my dad. I know where they're from. You know what I mean? That I'm okay. For me, it's more of like oh, where's my great grandparents are from? Because there's rumors in the family as always. I'm. Oh, you're a, you're a little bit of Spanish or a little bit Chinese. Like, yeah, sure. I don't know, but this is one. I'm a bit paranoid with these things, you know. Of course, maybe maybe one day uh, you might want to try it, and there's always time to do it. But not doing it is as good as uh, you know doing it. There's there's no <laughs> right or wrong. No, no, there's no right or wrong. It's just it's my you know paranoia. <laughs> of course, of course. You know, it's like when you're you're playing with your phone, you go to your social media, they follow you. No matter what, they follow you and they're listening to you anyway. But I make it like harder for them. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course. So I say my idea. I'm sure they can get my DNA. No problem. Because I have given blood or whatever. But I'm going to make it harder for them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Well, we we don't want we you know don't want to kind of there there's some there's some like conspiracy to try yeah, to think yeah, like yeah. oh you know like the you know. Listen, so, I'm not I'm not special guy. They're not like gonna call me or anything, but you know what I mean. I don't plan on committing any crimes, so they can have <laughs> my DNA, and I won't care. It doesn't matter if they clone me in the future. <laughs> uh, I won't be around in in a thousand years so if they want to do that that's totally fine by me oh, right yeah. now you never know maybe the technology will kick in and allows humans to live longer <laughs> i saw that you're a musician too you play guitar i yes i do i do play uh guitar and i've been in a couple of really small uh and uh you know uh non-represented at all bands uh <laughs> but pre predominantly i'm i'm a filmmaker and that's where i put most and all of my energy into mm, what kind of music do you play uh i've done like indie pop uh, indie rock uh some some bits of that yeah mm, that's cool i i used to play guitar now i'm too i'm too old for this and not too old but it takes a lot of time you know to be good at it you, you're never too old to be uh you know like to pick up an instrument and to create Hey, listen, buddy, I have two kids. I don't have time to learn to play guitar. <laughs> I, I did when I was in high school. I used to play in a little bit in college, but then I recognized, ah, this takes so much time. I'm not doing this. What, what, <laughs> I, kind, of, what kind of music did you, did you make music or did you, like, what kind of music were you into? Uh, I, list, I listened to pretty much any music, but 
when I was playing, I listen, I play, you know, alternative um, folk, rock and roll. But I really like acoustic guitar. I really yeah do. okay. This I love the sound of acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's natural. You you play electric, right? Yeah, I, I do play electric, but uh, you know, like it, I'm not opposed at all to acoustic. I just haven't, uh, you know, like I haven't done a lot with acoustic guitar uh, in a while. But um, I think you know, it, both are extremely beautiful. Mm, and, no, for uh, sure, a hundred percent. They just listen. I was poor growing up. We couldn't afford the electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> The, we um, well, it's being a musician is also extremely difficult and trying to, you know, kind of generate skill. And, and a lot of times some of the most, you know, like you have to look at it like uh, you want to do it for passion. Therefore, you might be able to be successful with it and stuff. But I think a lot of the most successful people who, who do music and a lot of like really successful bands, they don't really, you know, subscribe to wanting to learn music theory. And therefore, that makes them better. They don't think about it as competitively. They're, you know, they're doing it because they want to, and therefore they put more passion into it. And therefore, maybe the music sounds better. Hmm. Dude, I just want to hook up with chicks. That's all I wanted to do. That's why I wanted to learn guitar. Everybody has their own ambitions. You know, I grew up in the nineties. The ba bands were big: Nirvana, you know, uh, Pearl Jam, all those guys. I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna build. I'm gonna start a band, but it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, being be, being a musician is extremely difficult. I think you know. I I, I wanted to pursue the music thing when I was younger, mm. and uh, like you know, you know, in in high school and like early college and stuff. But uh, you know, filmmaking is kind of really where uh, you know I find that I have a, like I'm I'm quite a terrible musician, but. Uh, at least for filmmaking, I'm able to kind of see some results from that. So I, th I think I'm going to stick with that for now on. Do you write your own music or did you try? Yeah, yeah, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, hey, listen. Released it's some stuff on SoundCloud and, and that was about it. And so I packed <laughs> it up and said, you know, I, that, that, I did that. It was fun. Uh, and, you know, so I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. Oh, I will feel like remiss if I don't ask this. I... I saw that you still a Russian citizen. Oh my gosh! How did you? Oh wow! Yes, I'm. I'm still a Russian citizen. I, you know, like talking about this, I think this. You know, there's a huge elephant in the room. A lot of people who are adopted from Russia, they are still. Uh, you know, I, I. I don't know how much time we have specifically. Do your thing. We have time. Okay. I, I would love to talk about uh, you know filmmaking uh, and, and how you know like immigrant filmmaking and how that's kind of a process because that's more of like my own you know synthesis sure. and everything. Uh, but also being able to talk about like you know Central Asian culture and being able to talk about Middle Eastern culture to to an extent. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, in terms of being a Russian citizen, this is why almost the documentary is extremely important because. A lot of adopted people are still, or a lot of Russian adopted people are still Russian citizens. And in Russia, you know, if you've been living under a rock right now, you wouldn't know that there's, you know, the the war in Ukraine is still ravaging on, and the, uh, you know, a lot of there's a very very strict military draft in Russia, uh, for boys basically like 20 to 20 or like 18 to 27. That's the range that they would have to serve in, but they've actually extended that uh, into you know older middle-aged men's uh, you know range, and uh, it's an extremely terrifying thing as the Russian military is like extremely dangerous, and I would never want to be caught uh, you know serving in it. Uh, so this is in this is you know kind of barred me from being able to go back to uh, where I was born and being able to try to uh, explore that side of myself and be able to travel there. Uh, but yes, I do retain Russian citizenship, and I should probably give it up. But it's it's quite difficult to give up. Is it involves a lot of paperwork, and you have to go to a consulate and everything. Okay, so it's. But you were adopted by Americans. I don't like. So are you a dual citizen? Yes, I'm. Yeah, I'm a dual citizen. Okay. Sorry, no. I totally forgot to mention. Yeah, I'm a dual citizen. I, I should have clarified that. Yeah, I, no. I am for sure an American citizen. Okay. Well, no, I know you're American, but for me, I'm like, why are you still Russian? Like, it doesn't... 
for me, you know, it does. It's not nothing. I'm not that smart, you know. <laughs> Talking about, you said you want to talk about film. I've seen that you won so much awards. I mean, bro, I haven't had the chance to watch your films, but I love your style of your art. It's very, it looks like it's grainy. I feel like it's a little bit, a little bit throwback to the, like a little bit of like the, the old Soviet films that I used to see and a little bit of like some French in it. Am I hitting the right target here or what's going on? Yeah, I think I think you're hitting the right target. Yeah, I um I think you know as as an being an immigrant and being an adoptee and having, you know, multiculturalism, not really knowing my, you know, not really pertaining to uh identifying with one of my ethnic backgrounds, but just my ethnic background as a whole has mm. extremely influenced my filmmaking. Mm. And uh, just recently, you know, I, I, it, a lot of my films aren't public because we're going on festival runs right now and being mm. able to uh, premiere them at festivals. So therefore, they don't want it uh, open to the public, but we're able to have them screen at festivals. Um, I just re recent, recently released a film this past year called uh, Zardovia, My Love, in which I recreated uh, a fake Eastern Slavic country uh, in order to have my film take place in where I created a fake Slavic language made up from Czech and Polish and Russian so that a lot of people from this, uh, the, you know, the Eastern Bloc and post-Soviet world could be able to understand it. And it follows a character who is adopted, who meets up with a friend from the orphanage that he's from, and they relate to one another, but they also discuss their differences and they go and they try to find uh, the boy's birth mom. And so it's a short film that's about 15 minutes long. And mm -hmm. I was extremely influenced by a lot of uh, Central Asian and Middle Eastern filmmakers. But being in, you know, the Midwestern United States, it's extremely hard to come across um, POC actors and develop a POC story because, you know, it's it's there's not as many POC actors of the specific ethnicities that I wanted to portray in mm -hmm. this film. Originally, I wanted it to be... Uh, you know, a Middle Eastern cast or like a Central Asian cast so that I could relate to it or relate it more to my own story. Mm. So, uh, but for that, uh, you know, I wanted to be able to tell the stories of adoptees from Eastern Europe and from Central Asia and from the Middle East and be able to, uh, you know, tell a story that really focuses on the kinds of constructs that come from adoption and come from multiculturalism and hmm. be able to play with that dichotomy uh, uh, to an extreme amount. Hmm. Do you write the the story and the screenplay? Yes, I, I for most of my films, I either choose a bunch of my friends to kind of help me write the script. Being a director, it's extremely difficult and you need multiple people to really help you out with a lot of things. And this goes for writing as well mm. so i you know for by uh for zardovia i chose some of my friends one of them notably who was also adopted from russia who i knew from the summer camp that i went to growing up his name is valeri and he lives out in decora iowa right now mm. and he's a super great guy and i had he had helped me kind of develop the story and so uh he and i wrote this really awesome short film and uh we're you know touring with it still now uh and i guess you know it, it, making that film was something that helped me try to make this documentary that i'm working on right now hmm. because the stories are quite similar mm. do you make money off of this thing when you make a short film uh you can here's the thing when the film industry works like this for young independent filmmakers you, uh, you know, you want to make a film, you need money for it. So where do you get it from? Uh, you can ask people for money. You can crowdfund it for yourself. And you can try to be able to generate wealth that way to be able to make your films. Uh, another way is that uh, you can grant right. And hopefully a grant will be able to, you know, give you and throw money your way. Uh, but in terms of like money and filmmaking, I haven't really subscribed to the thought that you need a lot of money to make a good film. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe my, I mean, like, I'm not talking about my films being good. I don't know if, I, I don't think my. Hey, they win awards. They're pretty good. <laughs> the, uh, but the, uh, you know, like, it doesn't take a lot of money to be able to make a good film. I think mm-hmm. that's where, you know, my passion of, you know, making films that pertain to immigration have really tried to, you know, make them shine through. Uh, being so that, you know, I haven't had a large budget to be able to make these projects, mm-hmm. to be able to make these films. Uh, a lot of what I shoot on, you know, it maybe other people would take a route that involves a lot more, you know, financial concern. But, mm-hmm. you know, the creativity that comes from trying to creatively cut corners and make new decisions, uh, it influences the story in such a creative way that it's completely irrepl- irreplicable if you did have money uh, going into it, I, you know, so I think that the lack of money in filmmaking creates sort of, uh, you know, it, it's in dialogue with the creativity of it. Mm. Yeah. I a hundred percent. Cause you know, if you ask people money, usually they'll tell you, by the way, do it this way, do it that way, you know, but if you're running the show just from your own money, you can do whatever you want to do. And of course, you don't have much money. Then you can be more creative. No, truly. And like like you said, like I, I didn't even answer part of your first question because I'm just rambling on. But <laughs> uh, the one of the things that you had asked is like, you know, like kind of the influence from old Soviet uh, filmmaking. Mm. Um, for a lot of my stuff, I take a lot of influence from, you know, Central Asian, older 1970s Soviet era Central Asian films. Uh, and stuff. I haven't been able to watch much modern Central Asian uh, cinema quite yet, but uh, I would definitely look forward to it. But definitely taking from like uh, Middle Eastern filmmaking and kind of the lessons that are learned in, uh, you know, those sort of new wave eras and trying to apply those influences to my own work has definitely, you know, done, you know, I've been able to do that. And uh, I think I'll stick with doing that for my future projects. Mm. Did you always want to be a filmmaker? I think, yeah, it's, I've always, you know, as when you're younger, you want to be like a, a rock star or an, a <laughs> professional athlete. And, you know, I've definitely, I was definitely that, mm. uh, like wanting to do those things. But uh, <laughs> from a very young age, I, I loved being able to play around with the camera and make really stupid videos with my friends mm. and upload them to YouTube. Uh, <laughs> though you, You'll never find them. But uh, I've always felt that, like, you know, growing up with uh, dyslexia, growing up with learning disabilities, it's kind of hard for me to try to speak for myself verbally, uh, you know, and and reading wise. So a lot of what I would do is just make a short video about my experience, whether it was for a school project or whatever it may be. And it turned into a really beautiful passion. So uh, I wanted to pursue that as a career. And it's not an easy career, and I'm still <laughs> trying to make my way through it. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's how it is, man. <laughs> Grind. No kidding, no kidding. Right yeah. now, I'm on the path to try to, uh, you know, applying to film grad schools because I want to go to, you know, a graduate school and be able to make films under that. And hopefully later on, I can be a, a, a I would love to be a, a film professor one day mm. and be able to teach filmmaking as a practice in a university setting. Mm. But would you like to create a feature film someday? Yes, yes. I would love to create a feature film, hopefully inspired by some of my short films Mm. uh, and stuff. Uh, It's extremely difficult these days to try to create a feature right away. And especially, you know, I think the pandemic kind of did a number on that and Mm. stuff. Uh, I'm a lot of filmmakers make, you know, a, feature film right away, uh, you know, when they're younger and they learn a lot of lessons through it. And I guess I'm a little scared to try to do that. So I just make a lot of different, you know, short films. But in essence, you could say that this documentary series is almost like a feature film. I want to make it more of an episodic thing. Hmm. So a bunch of different short uh, episodes that kind of create a larger series that might be more, you know, 92 120 minutes i like it forget about being in the theater now there's a lot of alleyways now that you could 
allows you to create movies, right? Like Netflix, HBO, and whatever else, right? Yeah, I'm like talking about filmmaking and stuff. It's become extremely lucrative uh, and fluid. We have cameras on our body every single day with our phones. You can create anything you want on your your phone, even, and still have it be a really compelling and good story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to, you know, really try to think about the story and and what you want to say with it and mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, there there might be some uh, sort of motivation to try to get your stuff onto streaming platforms, and and that's awesome. But they're just, you know, as of recently, there've been so many different ways to be able to. Uh, kind of market yourself as a filmmaker and be able to really, you know, tell the stories that you want, whether it's on, you know, uh, Vimeo or YouTube or smaller streaming services. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether, you know, the opposite of the spectrum for that is like big budget Hollywood filmmaking or larger, you know, studio filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, listen, this is what I always say that I don't care the budget. Is the story good enough? If the story is exactly. good, I don't care whatever else. I recently watched that movie, Triangles of Sadness. Bro, that movie was fire. Oh my goodness. I still have to, I still have yet to watch that. I've been so busy, but I, I that's number one on my watch list. Ah, that movie is fire. I, my like God. It? Oh, I loved it. I'm like, yo, this is so good. Well, I'm a bit biased because one of the main characters is Filipina. So I was hey, like, I mean, that, that, that you know yeah so i was like yeah we love but, we love and, to see more representation of that as well yeah though. but the thing is the what what i love about this too is they didn't highlight that she's filipina that's why she's cool she's cool because she's cool you know i hate those movies that shove down the oh they're women or whatever they are that's why they're awesome no i don't care about your if you're male, female, or whatever you are, are you a good character? Like I always say a good example would be uh, Fargo. Do you know the movie Fargo? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great example. The woman is pregnant. She's a police. Great character. She's a badass. I mean, the character was written so that she, so that you know, it could be something that deviates from from what people might expect her to be. Hmm. Exactly. You know, this, I, I love those. I love those kind of movies that. It, they don't plaster it to you that, hey, you like this character because she's a woman or, I don't know, a person of color or whatever. Like this person, like this character because the character is cool. That's it. Well, I would say, you know, in, in contrast to what you're saying, I, you know, it, coming from, you know, the Central Asian American community, mm. there is very little Central Asian representation just because of, you know, population diaspora and immigration standards uh, we're we're not able to really see a lot of Central Asian representation. And that's, you know, referencing uh, Josh Bro and Malika Bureyeva who came onto your show. And, uh, you know, like they're kind of at the forefront of a lot of this Central Asian representation on new social media like TikTok. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're really creating a lot of stuff. And I'm, I'm always wowed at how good of uh, advocates for almost a whole generation of immigrants uh, young immigrants from Central Asia, they are. They're extremely, extremely well spoken for each other. Mm. And uh, I almost feel like an amount of imposter syndrome amongst them. But also, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to see more Central Asian, you know, representation in the media, in mm. film, in cinema, in the arts, uh, in music, hopefully. And, uh, you know, hopefully have that represented. So whenever we can see that, I'll be I'll be really, really happy. Oh, you know what you should do? <laughs> Telling you what to do. <laughs> You should talk to Malika and Josh and make a movie with these two. I'm actually, I, I just reached out to Josh and he's helping me out uh, as a story advisor mm. uh, for the Finding Gulnara documentary. Yeah, Josh and is very so smart. They're all, you know, all of them are really, really smart. And uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't been able to speak to Malika yet, but I really, really want to meet her uh, and everything. It, it, it's been kind of great to see them work together as these like, you know, this awesome, really awesome dynamic duo uh, mm. that's educating the masses about, you know, Central Asian culture. And, uh, you know, Malika's from Uzbekistan and Josh is from Tajikistan. And, you know, I hope that more, you know, we see more people from like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, all these other places be able to kind of, you know, tell the stories of their culture as well. 
Mm. Hey, if you want some Central Asians, I got them Central Asians on my back, man. I love those people. Let me know. I'll hook you up. Of course, of course. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully there's more kind of like, I don't know. I think, you know, it's really hard trying to develop these film projects that are about Central Asian themes because nobody knows about them. Therefore, you wonder and you worry if you're going to have an audience. But, you know, being able to watch their work on TikTok, like uh, Josh and Malika, uh, you know, it just proves more overarchingly that there is a, a very, very, very passionate audience that's willing to listen to Central Asian stories from, like, you know, people who are from Central Asia and stuff, especially from, you know, I've been able to see it from Tajikistan because, you know, that's where uh, my roots supposedly lie. Mm. And, uh, if, you know, I can't wait to be able to do this documentary and to be able to create more films that deal with Central Asian issues. Mm. Listen, as a fellow artist, I would like to call myself an artist, even though, you know, whatever. Podcast making is, is a definite art. I approach it as art. So I'll write to, sometimes I pretend I'm an artist, you know? So anyways, what I'm trying to say is I do not think about the audience when I create art. I create art because that's what my heart and that's my soul says. If they like it, cool. If they don't like it, I'm cool too. Truly. A real artist creates. He doesn't think about anything else. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I, I totally agree with you. You have to make it. If you make something for the audience, then you're going to be able to pander to what they want or what you think that they want. Hmm. But you just kind of have to stick to who you are and whatever you really enjoy doing and are extremely passionate about, it will be worthwhile and it will be extremely felt and thought out. And you, you know, you'll make something that has, an, a, you know, an immediate standard of, expertise and mm. emotion and everything in between yeah i agree like when i started the podcast there was a friend of mine that was kind of pushing me to to do not skits but like i don't know he just he wants me to do things that will get more eyeballs or more listeners and i said that's not me, dude. I can't do that. Okay, yeah, maybe it'll give me more money. Maybe it'll give me more um, uh, listeners. But I don't want them anyway if they don't want me. I want them to like me for who I am. Of course. You know? So going back to your point about, oh, what, will there be people watching my film? There will be people watching your film. If it's good, it's good. You know what I mean? People will watch. Yes, of course. And and as a viewer, you know, you, you, you definitely want to see more uh, like-minded people like you. So, and, it, it, you know, there's just so many different uh, people from, I would say, from Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, you know, all, all the Central Asian countries who probably have missed out on a lot of the things that we can see happening today in the media, especially here in the United States. Yeah, especially now with the representation is a big thing. Yeah, it takes more time. It's funny, though, about representation. I had recently had a guest, Gio Espiritu. She's a Hollywood actress. And she's a Filipina. And sometimes when she, apparently when she, um, what do you call this, when you try to get the, the role, when she auditions. When she auditions and they're looking for Asian, they look for light-skinned Asians. Colorism exists in so many different communities. And uh, mm. yeah, it's, it's not. It's not that. It's the, the casting director f focuses on the light-skinned Asians, which is what happened to the representation. You know what I mean? Yes, of course. But yeah, no, I mean, like, like in, in the industry in like these communities in the industry, maybe they do want to show as an Asian representation, but, uh, you know, colorism still uh, prevails and, and, you know, ruins opportunities like that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll all be, I feel like, do you think racism will end someday? That is an extremely complicated question. Racism is a man-made construct, mm. uh, you know, so if it, 
is to end, then we should do it by, you know, those means necessary to, you know, eradicate it. it you know, it's, it's, a, it's a collectively responsible thing. You know, mm. it didn't come from anywhere. But that, you know, that's, that's a question for a completely different person other than me. No, my, my two cents is, my two cents is that, you know, I think, you know, growing up in the United States and be experiencing racism, experiencing racial slurs like completely throughout childhood. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, no, it's it's um, it's still like a mind boggling uh, concept to try to do. But, you know, it's it's obviously a man made thing mm. and racism didn't come out of the blue. It's not a natural concept. So therefore, you know, it, it's the collective responsibility of humanity to try to eradicate it. And uh, politically, wherever this goes, you know, who knows if we'll be able to eradicate it because it's the humans that defined it. Hmm. Is it really man-made? Because I don't know if you see these videos of these monkeys taking a bath in their, uh, in like a hot, a hot spring. It's in Japan. And apparently these monkeys, they just saw this hot tub and started going there. And they figured, oh, this feels good, so we'll stay here, right? Apparently, the, pe- the monkeys, <clears throat> excuse me, the monkeys that stays in the water, there are some group of monkeys that they push off. Like, they're not allowed in the water. For some reason, I don't know why. Maybe they're not, maybe their fur is different or whatever. But it shows you that they want, they have prejudice in them. Yeah, and I mean, like tribalism, yeah, of course exists. Uh, you know, that's it's like a quite a different concept. I haven't seen that video, but uh, I think, you know, in in terms of like, I'll just say it from a filmmaking standpoint. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you know, there's just so many really awesome like you know filmmakers who deal with immigrants, you know, immigration mm-hmm. subjects, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you have to really try to separate yourself from in an industry core, like what you were talking about with your previous guest experiencing colorism in the acting industry is the concept of ethnocentricity in the fact that like, that means like basically uh, the, you know, the bias that one ethnic group and their culture and customs and traditions are somehow morally better or morally grounded in reality than another different one. Uh, So for that, you know, a lot of times you have to really kind of look at these things and look at how you want to represent your own culture, but also be able to show the ills and the issues that happen in your culture and be able to represent them as much as support your own culture. Mm-hmm. Well said. I know one of your main goals for filmmaking, making your movies, is representation of Central Asia's. But are there another goal or other goals that you have when you're making films? Uh, yeah, I think, like like I said, I'm only part Central Asian. I also, you know, have uh, been able to explore filmmaking for, other, you know, other groups that I belong to, such as, you know, like the Black community and North African community and Middle Eastern community. Um, and it just kind of goes to show that when, you're, when, when I've been thinking about representation, you know, it's extremely along a long spectrum and stuff because like where do you draw the line at what is middle eastern what is central asian what is north african what is black these are all vastly different concepts to a lot of different people but in the regions where they overlap you know it's completely different uh in terms of filmmaking trying to you know tell a story that's extremely impactful from my life i only relate my films to my own personal experience so being able to tell people about the things that I've experienced through an artistic manner. That is my ultimate goal. That is my ultimate reason why I make filmmaking because I have the passion to, you know, do it, but also it takes an extreme amount of vulnerability that uh, induces a lot of anxiety to me. <laughs> and uh, it's something that I really am trying to work on. But aside from that, you know, uh, being I all I can do is tell stories that I have related to and I can relate to and that's why I do it mm, well said listen Nick this has been a, such a great conversation I really do appreciate you before we close out do you have any parting remarks or anything you want to say very much uh, I, you know like we talked a lot about in this uh, you know looking at different you know things and trying to explore your own you know it, you know, like 
trying to explore your own culture in an artistic sense, I think has been like basically the main theme of what we've been talking about. But I think that there's a certain power in, you know, exploring other things and exploring other cultures and trying to be able to, you know, that that's how we can relate to one another, uh, you know, through a path of empathy and, you know, observing other, you know, uh, communities and stuff artistically and stuff from a distance. And hopefully we can understand each other a little bit better. Hmm. Wise word from a wise man. Again, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Aaron. It was it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Again, thank you, Nick, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.